We're in the midst of a series through the book of Ephesians, the title of which is on the screen behind me, Your Place in God's Plan. But I'm going to explain in just a bit a mini-series, an interlude that we've been involved in and will conclude today. And then we'll get back to our passage-by-passage study of the book of Ephesians. The rich and famous love to tell other people how to live, but all too often they fail to practice what they preach. I think of the many celebrities who lecture us about, for instance, saving energy, while they get from place to place in private gas-guzzling jets and limos. And their so-called environmental footprint is many times higher than that of the average person. Or take Paris Hilton, please. (laughs) She famously lent her voice and name to the Rock the Vote campaign. And in that, she cited how important it was for young people to get out and vote and make their voice heard so they could play a role in changing the world. But it turns out that Paris herself did not vote. She didn't even register to vote. Or, as she stated in a later interview, she didn't even know where to go to register to vote. Have you ever wondered how many of the celebrities who sell products to the rest of us actually use those items themselves? Geico made fun of the disingenuousness of it all when, a few years ago, They ran their ads with ordinary customers telling their story, but the customer was accompanied by a paid celebrity. And so remember, they would say, she's not an actor, so we hired an actor to tell her story. We don't like it when people who represent something do not actually believe in that something that they represent. Let me ask you, friend, do you represent anyone? Are you, in effect, the spokesperson for someone else? The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that we are Christ's ambassadors. And there God tells us that He is making His appeal through us. We make a claim to believe in Jesus Christ. But the question is whether we give evidence that we truly believe what we claim to represent. This is so important that in the letters of our New Testament, they are most often divided into two major sections. The first section being a teaching section, telling us who God is and what God has done for us and what our identity is in Christ. And then the second section, built upon that, tells us how we should live because of who we are and who it is that we represent. The letter to the Ephesians is like that. Chapters 1 through 3 have told us about God. In chapter 1, we saw His electing love for us in eternity. In chapter 2, we saw His mercy and grace shown to us in time. In chapter 3, we're told of the wide and long and deep and high love of Christ. His love, His mercy, His grace has been shown to us. And then we come to chapter 4 in verse 1, and we're told 
now to live in a way that's consistent with who we are, in a way that accurately represents the one that we say we have come to believe. And it tells us in chapter 4 that we're to do that, that we're to display a genuine belief now in this God, in this Christ, with our attitudes, with our words, and our actions. We're going to see in chapter 5, in a few weeks, that we're told to do this in every realm of life, at home, at work. The things that we're told to do in these chapters are not ends in themselves, friends, but rather we're to do them for a purpose, a purpose that reflects the character of the one we represent. And so in verse 25 of chapter 4, that means speaking truthfully. If I represent Christ, I have to use my words in a way that I speak truth. And then in verses 26 and 27 of chapter 4, if I'm going to represent Christ, it means that I am a person who seeks peace in my relationships. And we saw several weeks ago that in verse 28, accurately representing God means that we use our resources, actually His resources, for the good of others. Notice verse 28. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with his own hands. But here's the reason. The purpose clause is that he may have something to share with those who are in need. For the last several weeks, we've taken a break from our passage-by-passage look at Ephesians in order to concentrate on what it means to help those who are in need. And we've pursued this mini-series at this point because, most of you know, we've just celebrated our 10-year anniversary as a church. And so it's a good time for us to reflect on how well we represent our God in who and in how we serve. The title of this mini-series is at the top of the outline that was inserted in your program. I call it Full Service Church. And it means a couple of things. We want to be a church where everyone is fully serving and where we as a church offer a full range of services or ministries. Those are synonyms you'll recall if you've been here. Service, ministry, same thing. And I've noted over these last few weeks that God has given us wonderful servants. And as a result of that, we have a serving church, 70 to 80% of our congregation actively involved in ministry. And so we have most everyone serving the Lord in His work. But in order for us to offer a full range of services that display God's character in that ministry, we'll be aided greatly by obtaining a ministry center. I'll say a brief word to you about that at the end of our time together. But so you don't get all excited, we don't have a ministry center yet, so that's not it. I'll just give you a brief, brief update. And the definition of service of ministry that we've been using in this mini-series for these last few weeks is in your outline. It says at the bottom of your outline that all of our messages are available on our website, so if you missed any of those, I encourage you to go back and listen. But look at the definition of service on the outline. 
we've been seeing that service or ministry takes place when divine resources meet human needs through loving channels to the glory of God. Last Sunday, we finished looking at each of the four principles in that definition. Divine resources, we've seen, means that we are conduits of God's resources. We're not cul-de-sacs. That we are distributors, we are not the manufacturers. And what we have to give, whether to meet spiritual or physical needs, comes ultimately from the gracious hand of God who was given to us so that we can give to others. Divine resources that meet, secondly, human needs. Human needs are unlimited. But the good news is that means ministry opportunities then are unlimited as well. But for all of the needs that human ha- humans have, the most important is to be reconciled to God through the cross of Christ. And therefore, whatever we do, our most important ministry is and will always be the ministry of the gospel. And two weeks ago, we looked at the third of those four components. Loving channels. Service takes place when divine resources meet human needs through loving channels. God provides the resources. God's the manufacturer. He's chosen you and me, as you've heard me say these last few weeks, to be his supply chain, as it were. The resources God has given are only going to be distributed as God has purposed when those to whom they're given love others as our God does. And I remind you that in order to love, I have to see people as God sees them. I have to see others as God sees them. When Jesus saw the crowds, the Bible tells us he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And I have to see myself as God sees me. I have to have the humility to see that but for the grace of God, so go I. To love, I must see others as God does, myself as God does, and I have to give as he gives. And we saw that love requires giving and not just token giving, but sacrificial giving. And that there's no such thing as convenient love. And so service takes place when divine resources meet human needs through loving channels. And we saw last week that is all to be done, as is everything, to the glory of God. The glory of God is one of those churchy kinds of words that we hear and we say, but we don't always understand. God's glory is the display of His character. And we glorify Him when we reflect that character in our lives and we praise Him for the display of that character in His world. We glorify God by imitation and by praise. And that's why we serve others. To display, to imitate the character of God. We serve and we evangelize because people do not know what God is like and they need to see Him in us. Now, friends, we need to just pause for a few moments to consider that it is very possible for us to distort the character of God. Have you ever considered that? To glorify God means for his character to shine forth. For us to glorify God means for his character to be displayed, to shine forth from us. 
And we need to think about whether or not we are giving an accurate picture of who God is. It's possible to give to those in our sphere of influence a wrong, distorted picture of God. Now, it's obviously a distorted picture of God if we claim to believe in Jesus, but we live in regular, undealt with, unconfessed sin. And people see that, and they see us to be hypocrites. And we're distorting what it is we we claim to, to represent. We're giving a distorted picture. And that's obvious to all of us, right? But you know, there's another way that's much more subtle that we can distort the character of God. It has been my experience that those of us who are devoted to God's Word and teaching God's Word, and therefore are devoted to what some call the doctrines of grace. Some of you know what that means. In a nutshell, what it means is God is absolutely sovereign and we are absolutely, completely sinful. And none of us will be saved apart from the sovereign grace of God operative in our lives. And so I believe completely the the doctrines of grace. And I believe in the sovereignty of God. And I believe in God's activity as we've seen in Ephesians chapter 1 in His electing love in eternity past. It's inscrutable. I don't know what that word means. I just like to say it. But it really, it means we can't understand all that God does. I certainly can't understand why God placed His love upon me And if you think you can understand why he did so for you, you don't understand your own sinfulness. So I believe that God is sovereign in everything, including in the matter of salvation. But here's what I've observed. So often, we get so wrapped up in a portion of God's character that in effect we exclude another portion of God's character and thus distort who he is to those that we're trying to display his character to. Here's what I mean. Do you all remember last week when we looked at the glory of God and I said the glory of God is His character and that theologians often divide His character into two categories, the attributes of His greatness and those of His goodness, His his incommunicable attributes and His communicable attributes. And you may remember that the difference is God's character qualities, His attributes of greatness, His incommunicable attributes are those that are His and His alone. We can't share them. We can't display them. He's sovereign. We never will be. He's omniscient, we never will be. He's omnipotent, we never will be. And very often what we do is we talk about those attributes of God that are in that category and that category alone. And the shame of that is the only category that exists where I can actually imitate and display the character of God is in His goodness. And that includes his love and his grace and his mercy and his truth and his faithfulness, among others. When this happens, it has far-reaching effects on our individual lives and our ministries. Because, to paraphrase one author, every misconception about Christian life and ministry is first a misconception about God. 
Every misconception about Christian life and Christian ministry is first a misconception about God. And so if we only display or mostly display only one part of God's character to those that we are called to reach, we give a distortion of who He is. And that has far-reaching effects in Christian life and ministry. God has commanded us to display His character in our lives to those that we are, desi- are called to serve. And so 2 Corinthians 3, the Bible says this, We who reflect the Lord's glory. You all see that? We reflect the Lord's glory. We reflect God's character back to Him and to an onlooking world. And we who reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory. So God's work in us does not end at our initial response to the gospel, but rather we are now being sanctified, we are being set apart from the world and to God, from sin and to righteousness, progressively, as we become more like Jesus Christ and thereby display His his character in an ever-increasing way. Jesus said, Let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds, and that should result in glory to God, praising your Father in heaven. The way I talk, my attitude, are all to accurately reflect the character of the God whom I say I represent. Paul, who wrote Ephesians and also Philippians, says this in Philippians, do everything without complaining or arguing. (laughs) You know, the Bible just meddles all the time, doesn't it? So how many things do I do without complaining or arguing? It would be all of them. But notice why. Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe. Convicting, isn't it? Well, the Bible says further. The context is slaves to masters, but you could apply this to any employer-employee relationship. Teach slaves to show that they can be fully trusted. Why? Here's why. So that, in every way, they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. A so-called Christian employee who does not display honesty, is not displaying the character of God and is thus failing to glorify God. Peter said, Live such good lives among the pagans that they see your good deeds and glorify God. Which then brings me to the final two points in your outline. We've had the same outline for the last several weeks. And we're going to finish today.
we're going to talk about the character and motivation for our service. You see Roman numerals 3 and 4 in your outline, the character of our service. And you might write next to, if you have a pen, just write next to the character of our service, what we do. Because that's what I mean by the character of our service. It's characterized by, and this is the, the kind of stuff we do. This is what we do. In the motivation for our service, we're going to be reminded of why we do it. What we do and why we do it. And what do we do in displaying the character of God to a sinful and broken world? We show the character qualities of God. In particular, we show the mercy of God to a broken world. Now, what is the mercy of God? One author has defined it this way. The ministry of mercy is meeting needs through deeds. As agents of God's mercy, we should seek to bring substantial healing of the effects of sin as widely as possible. The ministry of mercy is meeting needs through deeds. And as agents now, representatives of God, as agents of His character, including His mercy as it's applied, as we will see, to the misery of of a sinful world, as agents of God's mercy, we should seek to bring substantial healing of the effects of sin as widely as possible. One of the Puritans wrote, grace has to do with man's merits and mercy has to do with man's misery. Grace has to do with man's merits, meaning we don't have any. And thus we require the grace of God, the stooping down, the condescension of God, in order to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Mercy has to do with the misery that exists in a fallen world because of sin. God's mercy is that aspect of His, his nature that moves Him to relieve suffering and misery. Mercy, mercy is the impulse that makes us sensitive to the hurts and lacks in other people and then causes us to want to alleviate them. And since the fall, since the entrance of sin into God's otherwise good world, man has been broken, man has been miserable as a result of four areas in which sin dominates. And I want to show you each of these, if you care to jot them down. Sin results in broken relationship in these four areas. The first and the, and the broadest is with nature itself. Do you all know, or do you remember, that nature, the natural world, the created order, is convulsing, the Bible teaches, because of sin? That prior to the entrance of sin into God's good world, that man was at peace with nature? You didn't have earthquakes and volcanoes and, and disasters? natural disasters. But as a result of the fall now, nature is cursed and the ground is, is cursed. And so here's what God said to Adam after he sinned, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it until you return to the ground, for dust you are and to dust you will return. 
after the fall, after the entrance of sin, God declared to Adam and Eve they're cut off from nature. Once nature was a friend to humanity under our dominion, and now the natural world is hostile to us. And so Paul refers to this unnatural condition of nature. It's not what it was made to be like, but now is in Romans chapter 8. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. Here's why. For, because the creation itself will be liberated. It will be liberated from its bondage to decay and will be brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. I mean, that's, a, that's wordy, but do you all get that? The creation itself is waiting for the consummation of the age. When the children of God for whom Jesus has died will all be made known, will be revealed. And the world will be reconciled to God as originally intended. The creation itself, in the meantime, Romans 8 tells us, groans until that happens. And so mankind, because of sin, is alienated, broken in his relationship with nature. What that means then is we can and we should display the character of God, in particular His mercy, to those who are caught in the ravages of the convulsing of the created order. Ministry opportunities for us to show the mercy of our God to those who are harmed by nature. There's a second way in which sin results in broken relationships, and that's with others. With nature, but also with others. The first sin occurs. You all know the first, most of you know the first few chapters of your Bible. God gives one command to be obeyed, or one, one prohibition to be obeyed. They violate that prohibition and thus fall into sin and all of its consequences. And God questions them about that. And he says, Adam, what have you done? And here's how Adam replies. The man said, the woman. Well, game on. The man says, it's the woman. And it's the woman, as you've heard me say, it's the woman you gave me. So, it's her fault. But ultimately, it's your fault. You gave me this woman. I praised you for giving me this woman. She is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. And yet you gave me a defective model. The man says, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. And so now as a result, sin has broken relationships, not just with nature now, our relationship with nature, but with one another. And you see that in mankind's relationships played out in all of our relationships. We're separated now from other people. And Adam and Eve's sudden need for privacy, remember they hid from God and they covered themselves, that was not a natural thing. And rebels from God do not need to hide only from God, but also we hide from each other. 
And that first marriage squabble, complete with blame shifting and backbiting, immediately takes place after the entrance of sin. And now, self-centered with our inner passions at war with one another, all sinful humans are on a collision course with other people. And all, friends, all of our social problems are a result of sin. All of them. How then can we display the mercy of God to the misery that people experience in their social relationships. You all have heard me say over and over that we're pursuing a ministry center, a service center, a place where we can have ministry service going on throughout the week to help people with their problems, including problems like divorce, marriage issues, parent-child issues. These are all issues that flow from the social consequences of the entrance of sin into God's world and to which the mercy of God can and should be applied. Sin results in broken relationships with nature, with others, but also with ourselves. Originally, Adam and Eve were integrated. They, within themselves, were harmonious. But now, within their, their own psyche, they're disintegrated. Where there was personal peace. Because of sin, there now came shame and fear and tormenting, tormenting self-consciousness. Who am I now? Why am I here? What's going on in my life? The mind games that go on that all of us experience and those outside of Christ experience in excruciating ways. And so unhappiness and guilt and fear and loss of personal identity and depression and anxiety and substance abuse and suicide and sexual problems. They all stem from the loss of fellowship, friends, with God. And that condition occurs because each of us was given a heart that was built by nature, by God, created for worship. And because of sin, now mankind enters the world. Everyone who enters the world enters the world with a purpose contrary to what they were made for. We were created to serve God with every ounce of our being. We need to serve God in order to have meaning and purpose in our lives. And that's why sinful people constantly manufacture idols for themselves. The vain search for meaning. In persons and in relationships and in things. And we believe they will give us fulfillment. But no idol can cure our sinful hearts. All idolatry leads to hunger pangs in the soul because nothing but a relationship with God, the God who made us and made us for His purposes, can restore us and fulfill us. And so Augustine was correct when he said, 
Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in Thee. And so sin results in broken relationships with nature, with others, with ourselves. But ultimately, and most importantly, and all of the others are the consequences of this. Because we are alienated from God. Notice what the Bible says. The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God. That phrase, and they hid from the Lord God, is one of the saddest phrases in all of the Bible. They were made to have fellowship and communion with their God. And now they hide from God. And their hiding from God means they hide from each other. And their broken relationship with God means they are broken internally as well. Their broken relationship with God means that the created order is not going to fulfill its intended purpose until restoration. All of it stems, all of the ill consequences now of sin, all stem from alienation, a broken relationship with the God who made us. says that they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. It was apparently customary for God to walk in the garden toward evening. And it was natural, apparently, for man to walk with him. And so you have this picture of fellowship and intimacy that we had with God. And now man experiences fear and trauma in the presence of God. And he's traumatized by and hostile to the holy presence of God. And yet we were built for fellowship with God. We cannot, get this, cannot live with God as sinful beings. Cannot live with God. But we can't truly live without Him either. And that's the essence of man's condition. All of our problems flow from it. And none of our problems can be understood apart from that. But what it means for us, dear friends who have been shown the love and the grace and the mercy of God is that opportunities abound for us to serve and to minister in this broken world. So the character of our service is what we do. And what we do is seek to bring substantial healing to the effects of the fall. You see how wide they are as much as is possible. And why do we do it finally? What's the motivation for our service? Well, I encourage you to write next to that on your outline. Next to the character of our service, you wrote what we do. Now this is why we do it. What we do and why we do it. One author says this, the only true and enduring motivation for the ministry of mercy is an experience and a grasp of the grace of God in the gospel. If we know that we are sinners saved by grace alone, we will be both open and generous 
to the outcasts and the unlovely. Now, what is there exactly about the Christian faith that drives us or should drive us to care for those in need? And where are the needs? All over the place. What's the real dynamic of mercy? Evangelism, that is telling people about Christ, who He is and what He has done such that they can be restored to a relationship with God, which is, as we've seen, the source of all the other problems that we have. Evangelism has been succinctly defined as this. One beggar telling another beggar where to find food. It's just me as a beggar coming to you as a beggar and saying, this is where food can be found for your soul and only be found for your soul. And beggar is an apt description of our plight before we come to Christ. In fact, on several occasions, Jesus made the point that we are spiritually destitute. You all remember the famous Sermon on the Mount. At the beginning, Jesus gave what are called the Beatitudes, the blessings. And right at the beginning, he said, blessed are the poor. But not just the physically poor. He says, notice, blessed are the poor in spirit. The spiritually impoverished, those who recognize their spiritual bankruptcy. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus told a story. Mark told a story of Jesus. In Mark chapter 10, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. Now, do you see what Jesus is doing here? He's going to show this man his need, show him that his deepest need is alienation from God. And so the man comes with the assumption that I can do things to recommend myself to God. Just tell me what the list is and I'll do it. What good thing can I do? And Jesus says, why do you call me good? There is no one good except God. And implied here is, and we know you're not God. So there's no good thing you can do. But Jesus says, no one is good except God alone. There would include you. But then he says, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Defraud. Honor your father and mother. The teacher, he declared, all of these I have kept since I was a boy. <laughs> How self-deceived. The Bible says Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack. Go. Sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. And the Bible says, at this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus showed him that the root of his problem was that he served a false God. As moral as he was, and he's a moral guy, He's still serving in his heart a false God. And until you serve the true and living God that you were made for, until you love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your mind and all of your strength, you can never be reconciled and whole as you were intended to be. 
And another story. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus' teacher. He asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This is Luke's account. What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, and so he asked Jesus, but who is my neighbor? Who am I supposed to love as my neighbor? And then Jesus told the story that you all know of the Good Samaritan. He told the story of the the priest, the Levite, who went by and passed on the other side. But then a Samaritan, and a Samaritan alone, helped him. And Jesus asked the question, the penetrating question, who was a neighbor to this man? Now, why did Jesus Jesus find it necessary to do all of this? Now, hear this, friends. Because to receive the mercy of God, we must all come first to the place where we despair of our own moral efforts. Jesus' goal was to show this law expert that he was poor and to prepare him to seek spiritual riches in the mercy of God. Our most righteous acts, says the prophet Isaiah, are filthy rags before God. And imagine the most unsightly, smelling, decrepit, homeless person wandering the city streets in rags. He doesn't have much of his mind left. He has no resources. He has nothing to recommend him. The Bible says this is what all of us are before God through the prophet Isaiah. And Jesus was trying to show the law expert his own helpless condition by depicting him as the half-dead man lying in the road. The gospel, the good news is this. Though we're all lying in our own blood, spiritually bankrupt and lost, God has provided spiritual wealth for us. Thanks be to God. And he impoverished his son so that his spiritual riches, his righteousness, could be given to those who believe. The Bible says it this way. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is our gracious and loving and merciful God who we represent to those in our community, to those in our sphere of influence. And there are two powerful effects that the gospel of grace has on a person who's been touched by it that would be most of us. First, the the person who knows that he received mercy while he was an undeserving enemy of God, that person will have a heart of love for even the most ungrateful and difficult person. And secondly, it creates spontaneous generosity. And that's because unlike being motivated by guilt, the grace of God has provided such joy and fulfillment Now get this, that we don't need things. And we are freed to give them away happily. The gospel has freed me 
from the tyranny of stuff. And I don't need things. And because we don't need things, we can spontaneously and generously give them away. Imagine a person who's deathly ill and for whom the only cure is an extremely expensive medicine. He'll sell all that he owns because the medicine is more precious than his possessions, right? Notice what the Bible says. To you who believe, he, Jesus, is precious. If that's true, then we're willing to give up everything else for the sake of Jesus. For the sake of displaying his character in his world. The grace of God has made Christ precious to us. So that our possessions, our money, our time, they've all become eternally and utterly expendable. They used to be crucial to our happiness. They no longer are, thanks be to God. And so I ask you as we close, friends. This Community Baptist Church comprised of transformed people who are being shaped into the image of Jesus Christ. Showing his character, bringing glory to him by displaying his character in our spheres of, of influence. God is going to allow us to further our ministry in the near future so that we can have ministry going on throughout the week at a ministry center that he provides for us. But having the resources, the physical resources, will do us no good at all if we are not people who at heart desire to show the glory of God to those who need it. I told you I'd give you a quick update on our ministry center and then we're done. I've told you at the beginning of the year that by the end of the year, we hope to know what we're doing with that, at least for the near term. We have a list of potential ministry centers that we've been pursuing. Some of those would be places where we could meet uh, for everything. They would have the square footage where we wouldn't meet here, we could meet there, and do everything there, if it works out. Others are places that we would lease or rent, where we would continue to meet here on Sundays, Patrick Henry on Wednesdays, and then carry on ministry the other five days of the week at, uh, at that facility until we find a place all under one roof. So we've been looking at places that we can get all under one roof. We've actually made offers on two and have not been able to come to terms on those two. In fact, just Friday, I heard about the second. And so the second one has not happened and is not going to happen. Now, if you're disappointed with that, don't be because you didn't even know where it was. And, some, and a brother asked me, a brother who knew, asked me, he said, you know, were you okay with that when you heard that? And I answer honestly that, you know, initially, sure, you think about what could have been done, what might have happened. But I can tell you very honestly, that lasted a very, very short time. We simply turn the page and we go to the next one on the list. All it means is that's not what God has for us, that's all. And I am absolutely good with that. 
All God has given me to do, given us to do, is to pursue with all that we can that which is available and see what doors he opens for us. And if he chooses to close the door, I'm happy to know, I'm happy to know this is not the place God has for us. And you should be as well. Now, we turn the page so quickly that within hours we're pursuing the next thing on the list. And as soon as we have some information, up or down, on that, uh, I will let you know. So we are pursuing that as diligently as we can, trying to meet by the end of the year, if we can, knowing what we're going to be doing for the foreseeable future. Uh, With regard to a ministry center, I encourage you to continue to pray about that. God will provide that for us. But most important, more important than the physical facility, are the people that are going to inhabit that facility. And we need to be the kind of people that I've talked about in this message. People who desire to display the character of our God to those in our circle of influence.